Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, and I'm really happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the August 27th show, tax accountant Damari Gold. You can connect with Damari on Facebook and Instagram as Damari Gold. That's D-A-M-A-R-I-G-O-L-D. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the August 27th show at the somewhere in the middle podcast.com. You can also hear Damari again on the September 17th show, it's a bonus episode. And that one, she's talking specifically about preparing for the tax season. And I know it seems early, guys, but it is not too early to prepare. This is when you need to be getting everything straight for next year. So make sure you check out the September 17th bonus episode. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and I hope we can all share this with the youth. But it's not just for the young people. We all need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, this month's guest is really interesting. The work that he does is fascinating. I think you will find it as as fascinating as I did. Storm Cunningham is executive director of Reconomics Institute, the Society of Revitalization and Resilience Professionals. As editor of Revitalization, the Journal of Economic and Environmental Resilience, Storm tracks the latest trends and techniques in urban and rural regeneration, natural resource restoration, and resilience worldwide. Storm is the author of The Restoration Economy, which has been hailed by government and business leaders around the world as extraordinary, remarkable, a modern classic, a landmark work, required reading, and the most important and valuable business book I've read in many years. His second book, Rewealth, was published by McGraw-Hill in 2008. Storm's third book, Reconomics, the Path to Resilient Prosperity was published in both paperback and ebook in 2020. It is a guide for policymakers, real estate investors, and social entrepreneurs. From 2006 to 2009, Storm was Distinguished Visiting Professor at Seneca College in Toronto. From 1996 to 2002, he served as Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute a 60-plus-year-old association of 14,000 architects, engineers, contractors, and manufacturers. A former Green Beret scuba medic with the U.S. Army 7th Special Forces Group, he is an avid scuba diver, motorcyclist, and amateur herpetologist. He lives in Arlington, Virginia, USA. So I would like to welcome Storm Cunningham to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Storm, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Michelle, thanks for having me on your show. 
Well, I'm really excited to have you because I've read a little bit about what you do, but it's so fascinating and so interesting. And I think very important and needed. But before we get to that, I really want to ask you on a more personal level, Storm Cunningham, who are you and how did you get to be who you are today? Well, um, since I'm uh, going to be turning 70 in July, that's rather a long story. <laughs> but uh, the, the uh, brief version of it is that my earliest incarnation was as a hippie Green Beret. Um, I spent, after high school, I spent almost three years hitchhiking around the world. Uh, this is back in the uh, 69, 70, uh, when the uh, hippie movement was all the rage, and I graduated high school in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I was pretty much required to be a hippie. And I spent three years hitchhiking around the world looking for truth, and when I got back from that experience, within a few weeks, I had enlisted in the Army and ended up becoming a a medic on a Green Beret scuba team. So uh, that kind of led to where I am today, which you know, most people think of me as uh, a community revitalization and natural resource restoration guy. Uh, and that being on a scuba team in the military kept me, I, I stayed with scuba. And back in the late 80s, a German scientist working in Jamaica needed scuba qualified people to help him come down and do his experiments on how to restore coral reefs, which at that time sounded like a pretty silly thing. I mean, coral reefs take thousands of years to aggregate. And here this guy was saying he had a technology that could bring them back to life after they were killed and destroyed. Uh, but I went down and helped him out and actually saw it succeeding. And it was at that point that I suddenly realized that, you know, I'd always been a nature lover and a champion of sustainability and conservation. But all of a sudden, I realized that we don't have to be satisfied with merely sustaining things the way they are. I mean, you look around, the world's in a mess right now. Who wants to sustain this? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we don't even have to be satisfied with simply damaging the world less which is what most sustainability does. It's, you know, it's about reducing new damage, reducing energy use, reducing toxicity. Uh, we can actually restore the world. We can actually undo existing damage. And once I saw that happening, uh, it changed everything. And it led to my writing my first book, The Restoration Economy, which I started writing in 1996 and it came out in 2002. And mm -hmm. as soon as the book came out, I went into... Uh, doing talks and uh, training workshops and all consulting, all related to this re-stuff, redevelopment, revitalization, regeneration, reuse, you know, everything involved in making places better. I think that's fascinating. You got exactly to where I wanted to go, of course. Um, but I have to ask you this first. Hippie and Green Beret seem mutually exclusive to one another, at least by today's standards. How did that actually, how did you balance that? Oh, it wasn't a matter of balance. I've never been much into balance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've, I've always been more of an extreme uh, person when it comes to changes. Uh, so it, it really kind of uh, was in keeping with, with my nature that rather than just making some incremental change, I just dive into an entirely different world altogether. And I've pretty much been doing that all my life. So my original motivation basically was that after three years of uh, 
you know, living off <laughs> public uh, uh, welfare, not welfare as in uh, government programs, but hitchhiking around the world and relying on this kindness of strangers, um, I decided it was time to get some structure and discipline into my life. And I couldn't think of anything more structured and disciplined than the military. So I basically did it as a form of therapy. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. That's fascinating to me because these days it seems like Green Beret and Hippie would totally be uh, anti antithetical to one another. Well, not, not as much as you might think. Uh, special Forces, Army Special Forces, is more about teaching than fighting. Hmm. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Back in those days, Army Special Forces was the only Special Forces. These days, you've got Rangers and Navy SEALs and Marine Force Recon, and, you know, lots of things that are called elite units that are called Special Forces. But back mm -hmm. then, this is the only one. And its primary focus was on helping local people fight for themselves. So a 12-man Green Beret team was supposed to go behind enemy lines and work with the indigenous people like the mountain yards of Vietnam and help them fight uh, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese regulars. Uh, a 12-man team was supposed to be able to train and equip a 4,000-man guerrilla battalion. Oh, wow. So, uh, it tended to attract a very iconoclastic uh, sort of person, not the kind of person who is your normal soldier who just followed orders. They needed people who were able to innovate and come up with solutions and new strategies and tactics on the fly because they had no support. They were behind enemy lines. Uh, if you lost half your team, every person left on the team was supposed to be able to accomplish the mission. So they went for more of an entrepreneurial, creative, uh, by the seat of your pants sort of person. Now, the the seat of the pants part does seem to resonate with what we see in movies, but um, that other part just is is fascinating to me. More of educational and entrepreneurship, and obviously, you know, there's some amount of I guess cross training that ha everybody has to know everything if you're gonna continue the that, mission. That, that was really at the heart of it. Is that each person was trained to be in a specialty? I was a medic. Uh, the people were trained in engineering, like how to build and blow up bridges. Other ones focused on communications, but constantly we are training each other. Right, that's fascinating to me. So you were you were a hippie Green Beret, and you hooked up with this German scientist, and you found that he needed scuba divers, and you found that he was succeeding in bringing back coral reefs. And that helped you come to where you are now with restoring, not just minimizing damage. Right. How does that resonate with people who right now, all we want us to do is, you know, well, cut down how much you're driving or, you know, use public transit or recycle your plastic bottles, which anybody who's read anything about recycling knows that that doesn't always go as it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between restoring, as you're talking about, and what it sounds like these other folks are encouraging us to do? Well, all those efforts to reduce waste and uh, damage and pollution, uh, you know, they're absolutely necessary. Uh, I'm not in any way <laughs> decrying them. I'm just saying that my focus isn't on that area. My mm -hmm. focus is on undoing damage. Uh, that's my expertise. So they go hand in hand. You know, for instance, 
public transit is often at the heart of the most effective community revitalization efforts. Okay. Uh, you know, it, so the transit itself is cutting down on pollution, but transit can also reconnect communities that have been badly fragmented by highways and other car-oriented development from bad planning in the last century. So when you bring in the transit and then you create housing, preferably affordable housing around that transit, you're bringing people back to the heart of the city. You're helping to revitalize the city at the same time that you're doing all those other green things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and do you find that this car centric, and I'm, we're using this, this is just one piece of what you do, but do you find this car centric kind of culture that we have in the United States to be unique? Have you, you know, when you look at other countries, do they have similar issues with the highways cutting off communities and things of that nature? Oh yeah, the whole, that whole car worshiping uh, planning paradigm uh, is global. You find really? it uh, virtually every city in the world. You know, there are about 8,200 cities, uh, if you count a city as being over 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. And out of those 8,200, probably at least 7,000 have been grossly deformed by car-centric planning. So one of the things I, I often say in my workshops is that 80% of the work of the revitalizing work that'll be done in the 21st century by planners and engineers will undo 80% of the work done by their predecessors in the 20th century. Wow. So does that include things like actually taking down highways or yep. finding ways to really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's a major trend right now. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they remove the highway completely, which is what happened in Seoul, South Korea, where a fellow who is running to become mayor of Seoul took a look at this really nasty urban highway uh, that had severed the city, you know, destroyed neighborhoods. You know, people were living right next to this ugly, dirty, noisy, polluting piece of infrastructure. And, you know, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't visit their neighbors anymore because the highway was in the way. Mm -hmm. And so he said, you, if you elect me mayor, I'll get rid of that highway and I'll restore the stream that used to be in that place and create a linear public park and bring this whole place back to life. And so he got elected based on that promise. He fulfilled his promise. And now that ugly highway is now a beautiful park with a stream in the middle of it, running for miles through Seoul. It's revitalized the entire section of town. And as a result of that success, he became president of South Korea. What? Wow, that's amazing. So how is this catching on in the United States? I mean, what cities are you finding are adopting some of your concepts? Well, they're not my concept. All I do uh, is report on the good work that other people are doing. Okay. Um, I do have a few unique things that I've discovered, uh, which we can talk about a bit later if you want. But mm -hmm. the, um, you know, it was regarding highways, especially with this new, with the Biden-Harris uh, administration, one of the things they're focusing on now was something that tried to get started and got started a little bit during the Obama administration, but then got totally uh, derailed during the Trump administration. And that was the idea of undoing the damage that had been done to low income and minority neighborhoods by all this bad urban planning where they just, when, whenever they needed a highway, they'd just ram it through 
communities of color and low-income uh, communities uh, because they didn't count. And so one of the major trends in the United States right now, and there are actually some programs that have been funded to do this, is to undo that damage and reconnect those neighborhoods, either by removing the highways or sometimes, depending on how elevated the highway is, you can actually uh, bury the highway. You can cap it like they've done in Philadelphia and in uh, Dallas, where they simply, they had a low level highway, sometimes even a depressed highway. Um, and they simply put a cap on top of it and created, uh, in most cases, uh, public parks. You know, they wow. had all this brand new real estate by putting a cap on top of the freeway. So now you couldn't even see or hear the freeway anymore. It still served its purpose for transportation, but it, uh, by capping it, they restored the community. And they're looking to do that in Detroit right now. So it basically became like a tunnel. Is that what? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Huh. Okay. I'm going to have to look into that because I had not, I was completely unaware of that. That's a beautiful concept. And what about what cities um, around the United States are doing these sorts of projects? You mentioned, I think, Philly. Yeah, Philadelphia uh, turned their, uh, I think it's I-95 uh, freeway, which is right near the waterfront. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the other thing is that a lot of these uh, urban freeways were put on waterfronts, which kind of made sense back when they were first done, because in most cases, the waterfronts were ugly industrial zones. And because that's how the, these waterfront cities got started is mm -hmm. they build their ports on the waterfront naturally. And that's where the factories and warehouses were built. And then when the industry left, the you know, land left behind was polluted and the buildings were vacant and ugly and it became the worst part of town. Mm -hmm. And the big trend over the last few decades is for cities to reorient themselves and face their water because water is a magic revitalizer. So now they're putting their new housing along waterfronts. But to do that, they had to clean up all that pollution. They had to oftentimes reuse those industrial buildings and warehouses and turn them into housing. And mm -hmm. they had to oftentimes tear down the uh, freeways that were s separating the city from its water like they did in San Francisco with the Embarcadero Freeway. Uh, Mother Nature helped out there because Mother Nature brought in an earthquake uh, which damaged the Embarcadero Freeway. So they decided, mm -hmm. well, rather than rebuild it, let's just tear it down. And by tearing it down, that whole uh, west, uh, eastern side of San Francisco came back to life. And how often are we seeing these days, we're seeing more and more storms and different things like that. Are we seeing that Mother Nature's weighing in on some of this and influencing decisions by policymakers? Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, the redevelopment and adaptation and resilience efforts related to coastal communities is going to be the largest single area of engineering and planning for the 21st century. Uh, you know, most of the world's economy and population is close to a coast. And uh, with rising sea levels and uh, more frequent and more powerful storms, you know, the, all, of, all of this development worldwide is uh, having to be redone. So tell me what exactly the Reconomics in Institute does as it relates to all of this. Well, we train people to provide the missing element that causes most of these revitalization and resilience efforts to fail. 
And the sad fact is that about 90% of revitalization resilience initiatives fail. Either they fail outright or they fail to accomplish their major goals. And the reason for that is that they have no strategic process. They tend to, communities just tend to dive right into projects. And, you know, if you talk to any business person, any farmer, anybody who produces anything of value on a regular basis, they'll tell you, you need a process to produce something reliably. Mm -hmm. Everybody seems to know that, except the people who run communities and regions and even nations. Uh, then when they talk about creating revitalization, uh, they don't have any process at all. They'll just write a plan and a plan is not a process, it's just a document. And it's a document that becomes obsolete pretty much on the day it's published. And uh, they'll think they've accomplished something by writing a plan or they just hand out money to you know, subsidies to private developers and say, go do a bunch of projects. And they hope that somehow if they do enough good things that revitalization will magically appear. And, you know, it's kind of irresponsible to put the future of a community in the hands of magic and hope. <laughs> so what we do at Reconomics Institute, which is at Reconomics.org, is we certify people as revitalization and resilience facilitators. And their sole function is to help places create an actual process for revitalization and resilience that will greatly, greatly increase the chances that it will be success, successful. Give an example of a process versus a plan. Well, like I said, a plan is just a document. So, mm -hmm. uh, it, and unfortunately, a lot of places think that having a plan is an end unto itself. Uh, the reason for that is that elected officials hate risk. So they'll, you know, they want to be seen as revitalizing a place because that's the most common pol uh, political promise that mayors make. And uh, they don't want to take any risk so they write a check and commission a plan and then hold the press conference and say, we've got a plan on the way. And then a year later, the plan is delivered and they hold another press conference and they hold up their plan and say, look, we've got a plan. And everybody thinks that revitalization will be right around the corner. The trouble is that those first two steps involve no risk at all. All they had to do is write a check. The second, the next step is implementation. And that's where the risk of failure comes in. So what usually happens is the plan goes onto a shelf. It's not, never implemented. And five or 10 years later, it starts all over again when the mayor announces that the plan needs to be updated. So meanwhile, the community is seeing no progress whatsoever, but it thinks that things are happening. So plans actually get in the way of revitalization for the most part. It's like uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, said, he said, planning is essential but plans are useless. Uh, so what a pro how a process differs is that a process, the whole function of a process is to produce something. <clears throat> so uh, there are basically six elements, uh, what I call a minimum viable process that every community has to have in place if they want to re revitalize reliably. And you can add to it, but you can't take away from it. This is what you absolutely have to have. And it basically is, you've got to have an ongoing program. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a vision, a strategy, policy support, partnerships, and projects. And each of those six elements needs to be regenerative in nature in order to produce revitalization. What do you mean by regenerate, regenerative in nature? Well, in other words, you're not basing your economic growth on sprawl 
on destroying things of lasting value like farmland or watersheds in order to just create more houses or factories or whatever. That's the old method, which the old method was fine 5,000 years ago when they first started doing it and expanding uh, communities. But this is a finite planet. You know, we've got eight, over 8 billion people now and the planet's not any larger than it was when we had 1 billion people or even 1 million people. So obviously that model can't keep on going forever. So regenerative economic go growth is based on revitalizing the places we've already developed and on restoring the damage we did to natural resources along the way. So what kinds of natural resources are we working on, let's say here in the United States to restore? Well, all of them, basically. You've got multi-billion dollar projects to restore uh, watersheds and biodiversity like the Everglades uh, restoration project, which is about $16 billion. Uh, you've got all kinds of river restoration projects all over the country. We've got thousands of dams that are either obsolete or that never had a good reason for being built in the first place. And those dams are preventing fish from migrating and reproducing. And fisheries are about 10% of the global economy. So bringing back our fisheries by removing those useless dams uh, is, just provides a tremendous return on investment. So that reminds me of, you know, Georgia and Florida were in court for many years. They may still be. Uh, I haven't checked up on that lately for about the water usage here in Atlanta in particular. And they were Florida was basically saying, you guys are using too much water. And we know we have issues in California where there are water battles going on. Do, these programs that you're talking about should be helping with these kinds of things like you mentioned the Florida Ever, Everglades. That's what reminded me of that. Are we seeing still cities and or states fighting with one another over water, or are they starting to partner to deal with some of these water issues? Uh, both. Yeah, the fact is that water issues are becoming, you know, absolutely critical. It's water is the major existential issue in virtually every community on the face of the earth right now. There are droughts all over the place, including the Western United States right now. I mean, the Pacific Northwest of the US is known for being cloudy and rainy and gray. And this entire next week, they've got 100 degree plus days with no rain in sight and they're already dried out. So, you know, climate change is drying up many parts of the world and altering w weather patterns. So as a result, yes, you're seeing tremendous number of lawsuits between cities, between states, between nations fighting over water. But at the same time, you are seeing what you said, uh, many new partnerships where people are trying to figure out, okay, so how can we partner on restoring the watershed, not just reducing the amount of water we do, uh, we use, but actually increasing the amount of water that's available for all. Uh, you know, for instance, the United States and Mexico signed a treaty many decades ago uh, that guaranteed that water from the Colorado River would continue to flow into Mexico because one of the most uh, biodiverse and richest regions on the entire planet was the point uh, at the uh, Sea of Cortez, now called the Bay of California, um, where the Colorado River empties into uh, the ocean there. And uh, that the United States has failed to live up to its treaties for decades now, 
and you know Mexico's been suing, and you know we just refused to uh, live up to our, our end of the deal. And as a result, that entire Delta area that supported you know millions of people and you know hundreds of wildlife species has been dried up for a long time now. Wow. So basically, we are helping to cause an ecological problem there. That's also possibly even potentially driving people north. Oh yeah, but I mean, <laughs> that's that's hardly the only problem we've created in Mexico. I well, mean, you know, we're be, being being the most uh, drug addicted nation on the planet, uh, you know, has made us a rather uh, a destructive neighbor. You know, when they've got, you know, the, Mexico had the bad uh, fortune of being situated between the world's largest population of drug addicts uh, to the north and uh, the world's largest uh, population of drug producers to the South, down in South America. Yeah. And as a result, all of it went through them. They didn't have a drug problem before. You know, that's yeah. the, the Mexican drug cartel problem is entirely uh, caused by the United, United States. Okay, that's a whole nother discussion you and I should have on another yeah. day because uh, it is so interesting that a lot of people don't see it from that perspective, that demand creates the supply in yep. so many ways. Um, but I guess because you do Reconomics, you understand economics in general, <laughs> you understand that concept. Talk to me about Reconomics, The Path to Resilient Prosperity that was published in paperback and ebook in 2020. Yeah, so that's my third book. Uh, first one was The Restoration Economy, came out in 2002. The second one was Rewealth, which came out from McGraw-Hill in 2008. And Reconomics, The Path to Resilient Prosperity, which came out last year, is the first time that this revitalization resilience process has actually been documented. You know, the thing is, up until now, even places that had intelligent leaders and good intuition about how revitalization might be created, they kind of had to scramble blindly to put together a process. They, they, they knew a process was necessary, but nobody had ever given them a template, any kind of blueprint as to what a minimum viable process might look like. So they might have three or four or even five of the elements in place, but they had nothing to compare it to, so they didn't know that one crucial element was missing. So that's what Reconomics does. It's for the first time that a process for improving places has actually been documented. So what kinds of, uh, are you working primarily with government agencies, with uh, social organizations? What kinds of organizations come to you for help and training? Uh, most recent one is a giant engineering firm, one of the largest engineering firms on the planet uh, just came to me in the recent weeks where they said they are tired of simply being hired to do individual engineering projects. And they want, you know, because they have all the component disciplines under their roof, Mm -hmm. You know, they've got over 50,000 employees, so they've got all the environmental restoration people, the brownfields remediation people, the infrastructure renewal people, you know, they've, they've got them all. Uh, but what they don't have is a complete solution to offer cities and regions for, you know, for accomplishing what these cities and regions really want, which is revitalization. They want higher quality of life. They, might, they want a healthier economy. Uh, they want it to be more equitably 
distributed and none of the other engineering companies have any kind of comprehensive solution like that. All they know how to do is dig holes and fill them in with, with new buildings and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So they came to me and uh, you know, we're now actively talking about how to incorporate this Reconomics process into their offerings, which will position them far above all the other engineering construction firms. And are you finding that a lot of firms are starting to come your way or to, I mean, are you pretty much the only person who's doing this? <laughs> well, that's the reason uh, we created Reconomics Institute is to certify other people to do this work. Uh, there's just so much need worldwide. And, uh, you know, and there are a lot of people around who are not satisfied with the way they've been earning their living. You know, we've got one fellow who graduated recently as a revitalization resilience facilitator. What we, we usually just shorten it to re-facilitator. Mm -hmm. And uh, he spent the last 20 years as a lawyer, but got burned out on that, really wasn't happy as a lawyer, and got uh, certified as a re-facilitator. And uh, within a couple of months, he was on the board of directors of one of the largest regional ecological restoration and economic revitalization initiatives in the country. <laughs> He's now much happier with his life. That's awesome. So are you finding that a lot of young people are coming to your organization? Uh, yeah, uh, it's primarily young people. I, I think it'd be safe to say. Um, you know, I've, I've spent the last 20 years doing public talks and workshops, and one of my probably my favorite talks were at universities. I've spoken at dozens of universities. I did a two-day workshop at Harvard and spoken at universities from China to Belgium to uh, Mexico. And in every case, when the university would advertise this upcoming talk on what well, I usually focused on how to create a career that restored the planet in some way, Mm -hmm. how to create a career that revitalized the communities. Mm -hmm. And the lecture halls were absolutely packed. I mean, wow. the, the idea of improving the world for a living, improving people's future uh, for a living was just so attractive. You know, the young people really loved that concept. The problem was that when they went back to the classroom, they found out that their coursework really didn't include a whole lot of re-stuff. Mm -hmm. It was still focused on the first two parts of the life cycle, all the sprawl and resource extraction, and the second part of the life cycle, which is uh, maintenance and conservation. But all the stuff at the end of the economic life cycle, all the stuff that starts with RE, uh, was basically ignored. So they had to go to other organizations or simply get trained on the job to learn how to restore and revitalize places. So what do you think? Because we hear so many complaints about these millennials and Gen Zers, what do you think about the energy that they bring to really every industry right now? What do you think about that in terms of their outlook on how they want life on earth to be? Well, I mean, those are very artificial labels. Uh, it really boils down to the individual. I mean, yes, different generations have different uh, characteristics to some degree, but in actual fact, humans don't really change much from millennium to millennium. We're still motivated by the, the same things. So it's really more a matter of the economic trends, the environment that folks have to fit themselves into. And right now, young people, uh, all people, 
retirees too are finding themselves in a world that's just absolutely consumed by overlapping crises, economic crises, environmental crises, social crises. You know, everywhere they look, there's a crisis, uh, crisis on top of crisis. And uh, some people just kind of curl up in a ball and hope it'll go away. And other people decide to get involved in it as a volunteer to help uh, solve the problems. And other people decide, especially younger people, decide that that's what they want to do for a living is to help solve these crises. So are you finding a lot of retirees are, are also coming and saying, hey, I want to learn more about this so I can volunteer in my community or I can bring my expertise to some other organization as an advisor or, you know, I want to come out of retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Retirees have a wealth of resources, uh, the most valuable of which is time. And on top of that, they've got a lifetime of experience and many times uh, some serious professional skills. So when they combine that, when they get certified as a refacilitator, now they can combine their lifetime of, of skills and experience with the knowledge of how to actually bring places back to life. And that can be really powerful. Well, yeah, that level of experience. I mean, if you've had a 40-year career in, you know, construction, let's say, or like you mentioned, a lawyer who was unhappy with his career. I mean, that's valuable knowledge to have in all of these industries, right? Particularly, I mean, that lawyer, I bet definitely because he understand the ins and outs of how the regulations work possibly and things of that nature. Yep. Exactly. So what is next for you? What is it? What are you working on right now? And what's next for you in terms of the, the organization and what you're trying to do? Well, Reconomics Institute really only got started about a year and a half ago. So that really is going to be my focus for uh, the next 30 years. And mm -hmm. um, the, uh, there's really nothing more important, I don't think, that I can do than helping people worldwide become more expert in creating a local process to bring places back to life. I mean, that's, uh, I'm at the point right now that I've been shooting for for the last 20 years and uh, just continuing what I'm doing now will, uh, will be more than satisfying enough for me. Well, that's awesome. Well, Storm, I so appreciate you being here. Why don't you tell people how they can connect with you on social media, your website, et cetera. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and, uh, and to a lesser degree, Facebook. Don't really like Facebook. But um, uh, the uh, username there is Restorm. And uh, probably the easiest way to get connected to all the things I'm involved with, the book or books and organizations and publications like Revitalization Journal, which is at revitalization.org, uh, is simply to go to my public speaking site at stormcunningham.com. And the links to everything else are right there, including my email, which is storm at reconomics.org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Storm Cunningham, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barrard. Thanks, Michelle. I enjoyed it. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebarrard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune into the show on October 22nd when my guest will be self-leadership coach Eric Winters. 
You can find us once a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.